Hey, this is the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and we are smack dab in the middle of this series in the book of Revelation. Just before we head into today's message, I have just a few opening thoughts. I want to remind you again, this is a a survey of the book. We are uh, doing a high-level overview of the major themes and theology of the book of Revelation. And so unfortunately, we're not diving in verse by verse. But my hope and prayer is that you're getting a a sense of the bigger picture, the bigger kind of themes and ideas that God wants to, uh, to use in your life to equip you with how to follow the way of Jesus today in the world. Now, I wanna just say before we get into this, I spent a lot of time in this message talking about rapture theology and my personal um, uh, viewpoint on that where I've, I've landed in the last number of years of study. And the reason that's important is um, that in these seven seals and seven trumpets, um, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl that we'll get into talking about later, they're all talking about the end of the age. They're all talking about the coming, the final return of Jesus from different vantage points. And the reason I want to bring that up is my conviction is that we are actually living in what the Bible calls the last days. We are living in tribulation today. And I believe the Spirit of God is wanting to stir and awaken the church and equip the church, you and I, to walk through increasingly difficult days ahead, not to put our hope in being whisked off the earth from it and so that's why i spend a lot of time in this i just want to make one other comment about how the seven trumpets relate to the seven seals i believe that the seven trumpets will be talking through in chapters eight and nine and and ten next week too the seven trumpets are god's divine response to the seals and the prayers of god's people for god to act And so God is bringing through these seven trumpets judgment on the four horsemen that represent all that opposes God and his kingdom on the earth. And so the four horsemen of the apocalypse represent um, the influence and impact and activity of the world, the flesh, and the devil in opposition to God's kingdom. And the seven trumpets are God bringing judgment on those things that oppose him, bringing judgment on people that walk in defiance of God and a refusal to come to repentance. And so I just wanted to say that as a clarifier, we'll be dipping back into the trumpets even next week, but I hope that you enjoy this week and we'll connect in with you again next week. Let's uh, settle in here this morning. Okay, even though you have barbecue on your mind, we're going to walk through this as best we can. Um, Each week, I'm trying to do my best to kind of do a bit of review because especially now and next week especially, we get into some stuff 
um, even as it talks about the two witnesses. We get into ideas and symbolism and things that just, uh, it can be so overwhelming and confusing. And so what I'm trying to do is just kind of each week walk us back and kind of lay out the path that we've been walking through this book already. And as we've said before, our purpose here is to cover the major themes and theologies found in this book, not to do a verse-by-verse exhaustive uh, study. And so uh, just as a reminder, I actually uh, have these up on the screen for you. So the major themes that we've been uncovering so far are, number one, things aren't always what they seem. Number two, which kind of goes with that, the unseen spiritual realm and the natural realm are inseparable. So there is a a, a connection, a direct link between what we can't see in the spiritual realm and what we do see and experience in the natural. And one of the major themes and theologies of the book of Revelation is to, to expose us to that reality, that there are things taking place in the spiritual realm that are actually manifesting themselves on earth and vice versa. So what we do here matters. How we live matters. How we respond to what's taking place around us matters. Number three, real power doesn't come from kings or empires. It comes from God. This is like a central idea of this book. This is what um, John is being exposed to, in, in, especially in chapters four and five, but this reality that real power and authority doesn't come from kings and empires and thrones and rulers and leaders. It comes from God ultimately. So as powerful as we may feel the empires of the earth have been or are, God is actually the one who sits in power and authority. Uh, number four, Jesus knows about and is present in the midst of his church who will experience pressure, pain, persecution, and tribulation on the earth. So another massive theme through this whole book is that Jesus is present in the middle of his church where the followers of Jesus would be included in that and that the church will walk through pain, persecution, tribulation, and trial. It's actually a promise that Jesus gives us that These things are going to happen, but he's in the middle of it. Number five, Jesus, his call is to repentance from compromise and complacency. We're going to see that as we work through these trumpets and finish off the seventh seal, that the call of Jesus in all of this and for all of us is actually to turn to him, to follow him. And he uh, is working in this book to expose the areas in our lives of compromise, idolatry, where where we live by the standard of the world around us and not his. Number six, the throne is occupied by a holy and pure God. And God is sovereign and righteous. Purity and holiness are very important to God. So the throne is not up for grabs, it's occupied. The one who sits on the throne is holy and pure and he calls us up out of impurity in life. 
He calls up, us up out of compromise to himself. Next one, Jesus is the center of all things. In chapter five, we learn this. He's in the center of the throne. Number eight, the way of the lamb is to walk in the spirit like a lion, but in the natural like a lamb. Again, uh, one of the contrasts we see in chapter five is the angel says, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, in the spiritual realm, Jesus walks like a lion spiritually. He's powerful. He's not a, he's not a pushover or a wimp. <laughs> but we get these confused. See, in the natural, we approach people like a lion, like we, we guard our territory. We, we defend and define and we, we seek to overpower people and to exert strength and influence in the natural. But in the natural, Jesus walked like a lamb in surrender and gentleness and humility. And this inverse law of the kingdom of God begins to come out here where we see that true strength is exercised through surrender and humility and gentleness, not through power, not through military strength, not through might. This is what we begin to see in this book. Number nine, the way of the lamb is through suffering, not around it or over it. We see this again and again. We see this in Jesus's appeal to the churches in the seven messages he gives where he says to them, some of you are going to experience suffering and even death, but I'm calling you to follow me through it, not around it. Number 10, the world, the flesh, and the devil are working together to resist God's kingdom. That's what we've just read, is the provocation on the earth of the kingdom of darkness resisting the kingdom of God. Number 11, sin has had devastating effects on humanity and the earth that come with real and devastating consequences. Part of what we've just read, and we'll talk a little bit more about this, is the reality, is, is Jesus's way of pulling over the cover off. He's pulling the curtain back and he's saying, sin has had devastating consequences on the earth. Stop playing with it like it's your pet toy. Stop uh, messing around with it and thinking that you're stronger than you are and that you can just have a little bit of the world and a little bit of Jesus. Stop the life of compromise because in the kingdom, sin has devastating effects and there's actual consequences that come with living in sin. Number 12, prayer is a powerful force that moves, moves heaven and earth. This is what we see at the beginning of chapter eight as the seventh seal is about to be opened. Remember, we talked about these seals last week a little bit. I'll reference them back because these two chapters kind of go, or these three chapters uh, go together. The seals and the trumpets need to be seen in light. Okay, so the things that we read today need to be seen in light of the messages to the church in chapter two and three. 
These are now expressions from a heavenly perspective on why the church is walking through suffering and pain and hardship on the earth. Why the earth seems uh, plagued with sickness and death and conflict and bloodshed and all of these things. All of the realities that Jesus was speaking into the life of the church in the seven messages in chapters two and three, those are now being expressed from a heavenly perspective through the seals and through the trumpets. So we need to read chapters six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 specifically and into 11 we need to read those in light of what Jesus was saying to the church in chapters two and three. And we need to remember that Jesus is in the middle of everything we're walking through on the earth. So this pattern that we found in the beginning in these seven messages, the pattern was, and you can go back and read these, Jesus gives a description of himself to each church and that description of himself was a description of his capacity, ability, and strength to lead that church through the specific trials and tribulations they were facing. So that's what Jesus was doing when he was speaking to groups like ours. He was looking at their circumstance. He was looking at everything they were faced with and then de describing the attributes that he carried, the qualities he carried that would be sufficient to lead them through that. That was happening in those messages. And then he brings a word of admonition to hear what the Spirit is saying. And then he ends all of those with a promise there's a, a fancy word called eschatology. It means the study of the end times, but he brings a promise of what will happen if the church overcomes. So the main idea that we've been tracking with so far all through Revelation is that there's an impending crisis that will need to be faced. And that crisis will take on many different forms. John is writing to real people in the first century. So again, I want to remind you, revelation cannot mean for us something it did not mean for them. We are reading the words of Jesus as he gives John this vision meant to communicate actual things to first century Christians undergoing persecution and trial and hardship, but those words still apply to us today in the same way that Jesus is saying all through history, if you follow me on the earth, you will experience opposition and conflict. If you really walk the way of the lamb, it will stir up and provoke conflict. And that conflict comes from three sources the devil and the kingdom of darkness directly, our own flesh and our own desire to not follow Jesus, to gratify our own way of living. And number three, the systems of thought, the zeitgeist of the cultures and empires of the world. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are opposing followers of Jesus and they've been doing it for thousands of years. Jesus in these uh, seals and judgments is about to kind of pull a veil back and go, here's why when you begin to follow me, stuff starts to happen. 
Here's why these things are taking place on the earth all around you. But, but take heart, follow me. I'm the lamb at the center of everything. I have all authority and all power. And we've seen already that in these messages to the churches, some of these churches are facing external pressure, religious pressure, pressure from the state, from the Roman state. Some are facing false teaching inside the church. Some of these churches have been weakened through compromise and idolatry, and some have been weakened through compromise in culture. And our churches face the same struggles today that these churches did back then. I want to just back up and uh, just take a few minutes to talk through a key principle here. And I kind of dropped the bomb last week um, in talking about the rapture. So this is a, a, a key thing to kind of work through. And remember last week I mentioned... We're talking now about uh, secondary issues. (laughs) These are not things to divide over. These are not things to get angry and confrontational with each other over. Uh, These are just things we need to sort of sort out as we understand the book of Revelation. And to be fair, last week, um, I wasn't supposed to be preaching. Spencer was, but he was sick. So I didn't have any notes or any time to prepare anything. So if you felt like I was rambling and just saying like big, large platitudes and like statements like that, I probably was, but it's because I wasn't really, I wasn't really prepared. But I dropped this bomb last week, maybe for some of you, for others of you, you're like, yeah, that's, that's how I think too. And I said, I don't actually believe in a secret rapture of the church before a seven year tribulation anymore. That's what I grew up believing. And I know many wise and smart and godly men and women who do believe that and still believe that. But I think that what is being expressed in Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9 is a reality that the church has to face. Not something will be whisked off the earth to watch from afar. I want to just cover a few things. Like you could spend... Uh, copious amounts of time in this, but I just want to cover a few things because um, we're talking now about uh, these seven seals and seven trumpets. And the idea behind these, again, these are not chronological events that follow one after the other. They're just descriptions of what's happening on the earth. And they're intermixing with each other. And essentially, um, what Jesus is saying is these things are all taking place at different times and in different places on the earth. These are realities that you're going to have to live through. I think scripture is very clear that it teaches us as followers of Jesus that we are not exempt from suffering and trial and tribulation. That we are actually called to follow the lamb through it, not pray that we'll be whisked away from it. I want to just articulate a few things on why I have shifted in my posture with this. The language around these chapters of Scripture is around tribulation, a day of great tribulation, 
And so we're left to kind of go, is that now? Is that sometime in the future? Is that a seven-year period? Is that an indefinite period of the church age? How do we interpret this? And how we interpret this is important because it sets the trajectory for how we are going to live. So why have I shifted away from a a belief in a pre-tribulation secret rapture of the church before suffering? Number one, Scripture is clear that tribulation is already taking place. It's all over Scripture that we are living in days of tribulation. The Greek word thlipsis means pressing, persecution, suffering, uh, trial, torment. We are living in the middle of that already right now. It's a term, tribulation, that's used extensively in Scripture. And most of those references of the word tribulation in Scripture refer to the present time. It's Paul saying, I'm living through this. It's him exhorting Timothy and saying, be strong as you walk through this. It's Jesus talking to these seven churches and saying, this is going to be a reality that you live through. Scripturally, we are living in the midst of tribulation already. Number two, we are already in the last days. This is made clear in Hebrews 1.2, 1 Peter 1.20, that Christ's coming, his coming, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension marked the beginning of the last days. Scripturally speaking, this is what Peter was preaching in Acts 2 after Pentecost. And he's referencing Joel, the prophet Joel. And he's saying, in the last days, you will experience all of these things. And it goes to lay out some of the prophetic gifts that will be, um, will be stoked in the last days, but the trouble and trial and persecution that will come with the last days. Scripturally speaking, the last days are the point of time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. We're already living in the last days. The New Testament writers talk about the evils of the last days in contexts that make it clear they're talking about their own personal experiences. You can read 1 Timothy 4, 1, 2 Timothy 3, 1, James 5, 3, 2 Peter 3, 3. In 1 John 2, 18, John says this, we know that it is the last hour, not that the last hour is coming. John calls this period of history the last hour. Number three. So number one, tribulation is already taking place. It's not an exclusive event for some time in the future. And again, we, we've been, I mentioned this, we've been shielded by God's grace, and I'm thankful for it. Our Western church in North America has experienced an unusual period of history of peace and freedom in the church. But our experience in the present is not normative around the earth. I've spent time in India and in the Middle East and in Europe and other places where Christians are not walking in peace. Like I mentioned, it was only a few weeks ago that 50 Nigerians were gunned down in the middle of a church service. That's like all of you guys. Gone. 
So we can't say that, you know, um, that tribulation will only come when the, the church is raptured because we're experiencing peace right now, when the whole rest of the church is experiencing conflict and trouble and persecution. It's actually not even fair <laughs> to say that. When pastors are being tortured and jailed and killed for opening up a church. I was in a church uh, in the late 90s in southern Egypt. And when we walked up to the church grounds, there were 20 foot high concrete walls all around this church. And at every entrance point, there was a, a guard booth. And I said to the leaders that we were with, I said, what's the deal with this? And they said, well, just last month, some Islamic extremists broke through and they, they, they mowed down a whole bunch of people in this church. And so the government places armed soldiers at the entrances of the gates of the church. Like this has been something the church has been living through since Jesus came. We are in the last days. Tribulation is already here. We're in the last days. Number three, the Old Testament gives us examples of God protecting his people in the midst of his wrath and judgment. So one of the big, um, one of the big talking points when talking about the rapture is people will say, well, we, like, as followers of Jesus, we can't experience the wrath of God. That, that we won't be subject to the wrath of God. Therefore, we would have to be removed off the earth for God's wrath and judgment to fall on it. But that's not the experience of Scripture and the Old Testament even. And we just can look at Noah and his family who are protected during the flood as God is pouring his wrath out on the earth. The story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Israelites are protected when they put the blood of their sacrificed lambs on their doorposts. They're protected from the destroying angel. They're not taken out. They're not taken away from Egypt. They're protected from the wrath of God in the middle of God's judgment. This is the pattern we see all the time. God doesn't have to remove his church in order to protect it. He protects us in the middle of judgment. Probably the key, the most definitive passage is in Isaiah 26. This is part of what scholars call the apocalypse of Isaiah. And he's speaking about things at the end of the age, the very end. This is what Isaiah says. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and no more cover its stain. So Isaiah is imploring the people who are living at the very end to hide under God's protection while the judgment of God falls on the earth not to be whisked away secretly before it happens. Number four, in scripture, there's only one second coming described. See, this is what gets a bit confusing. One scholar that I was listening to gave this analogy. He said, you know, if I, 
if I tell you that I need you to go to Pearson and pick up my uncle Fred, his flight arrives at uh, 8 a.m., and then I tell you that you also need to go to Pearson and pick up Uncle Fred because his flight also arrives at 9 p.m. So you go, okay, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. You have to pick up Uncle Fred at 8 and then pick him up at 11 p.m. That's sort of the logic behind the rapture. Like Jesus comes, but then he comes. But in Scripture, there's only one coming of Jesus mentioned, one parousia, that's the Greek word, and that word means appearing. It means appearing or coming to. And you can read a whole bunch of scriptures around that, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 18, 5, 23, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8. There's lots there. But that word parousia to describe the coming of Jesus means the appearing of Jesus. But what's key to understand is in many of these passages, the coming of Jesus triggers a bunch of events that cannot mean the rapture. So later on in Thessalonians, Paul is using the same language to describe the coming of Jesus. And that language, he says, when Jesus comes, the Antichrist will be revealed and Jesus through the breath of his mouth will destroy the Antichrist. Well, that can't happen if he comes secretly and privately to whisk the church away. So there's a whole bunch of scriptures that indicate that certain things take place when Jesus does come. We could spend so long talking about this, but I want to just keep moving here. Peter says that the coming of Jesus and with his comings, the heavens and the earth will be set on fire. With the coming of Jesus, the perusia of Jesus, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed and renewed. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus, not a middle point rapture. Jesus describes his own coming in a very public way, not a secret and private way. So it's clear in scripture all through these passages that people use to kind of purport a rapture theology, a secret whisking away of the church off the earth. In many of those passages, it goes on to describe how that will be a public event seen by everyone. Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, that reality, 24, 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will it be with the coming of the Son of Man. Everybody's gonna see it. But we're told by rapture theology that it's secret and nobody will know. But that's not consistent with how scripture describes the coming of Jesus. Jesus goes on to say the coming of the Son of Man will be after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. How could that be a secret private rapture of the church off the earth before the coming of Jesus if everybody's going to be seeing it and witnessing it? 
He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. The fifth reason that I've shifted away from this is in Matthew 24, Jesus says the ones who are judged are the ones taken, not the ones left. So this is huge. When I actually recognized this and read this, in Matthew 24, Jesus says this, for as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the, with the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, there was eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. You can underline that phrase, swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding the mill, one taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day or hour the Lord is coming. Why well, I had this backwards my whole life? Probably because I watched Thief in the Night and read the Left Behind books, right? But Jesus is clear. He's using the analogy of Noah and those in judgment were the ones taken and swept away, not the believers. This is the exact opposite of what we're told to believe with rapture theology. Kirk Cameron is wrong on this, in my humble opinion, <laughs> that what Jesus is saying, it's the righteous who will stay and rule and reign on the earth, not be taken in a secret whisking away from the earth. It's those who God is judging that will be removed from the earth, will be taken away. So instead of being taken from the tribulation, the trumpets we've read about and the seals that we've read about, the church is called to look to Jesus and see the reality of his throne so that they can walk through the middle of it, not be whisked away from it. What's so important to me about this is these seven trumpets are the reality of God's judgment of sin and evil on the earth. Some people would argue that the seals, the six seals that we've just read about, that Jesus in these is describing the forces that are pushing against the kingdom of God on the earth, war and death and pestilence and violence and hatred and all, all kinds of these things. These are the realities that confront the kingdom of God. And the seven trumpets are then the judgment of God on those realities, on the forces of evil at work on the earth today. That's the, that's the symbolism of the seven trumpets. So what is Jesus saying in a bigger way here? Number one, when he starts chapter eight, there's a time of silence in heaven. I think what is being communicated there, which falls in line with some Old Testament stories, is that the final judgment of God, the the working out of justice and judgment of God on the earth will literally be breathtaking. Like who has anything to say to God 
when the one who is the righteous judge begins to and continues to work out his justice and his judgment against sin? Who could, who could offer a defense for themselves? When the one who knows all, who searches all, who knows the hearts of man is giving and bringing justice to everything. We see this in uh, Old Testament passages, uh, this, this idea that we are to be silent before the Lord, utterly silent in his presence. And that's how this opens up in Revelation 8. These judgments and these trumpets are a cascading of things. And as we work toward the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet, we're working toward the contractions are getting closer and more intense. As I mentioned to you before, the seven seals and the seven trumpets uh, need to be grouped together. The first four are always grouped together and those are a present reality. Five and six become then a heavenly perspective, uh, an expansion of that reality. And the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, the seventh bowl, which we'll get to later, are all describing the same thing from a different direction. They're all describing the final coming of the Lord. And that's described with words like crashes of thunder, peals of thunder, lightning, God moving in a final way on the earth. The trumpet of the Lord is the seventh trumpet, not the first of the seven. And that signifies the final coming of God to bring justice to the earth, to renew and restore everything that he had intended for it. One of the other major themes that we can derive from that beginning of chapter eight is that prayer matters. Prayer matters. What John is being exhorted to and what John is exhorting the church is to realize when you pray, prayer produces things in heavenly places. Those bowls of incense are brought up to the throne of God and then they're mixed with the power of God on that throne and poured down back onto the earth. Your prayer life matters. This is an exhortation again from John to the church to say, get on your knees again and contend for the things of God in your family and in your life. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Prayer actually is doing something even when you can't see it in the present. This is an exhortation from Jesus to the church to be a church that prays. I want to exhort you. We once a month have a day of prayer and fasting, the first Monday of every month. This is our little way to take the words of God seriously and be a church that prays, to be a church that finds itself on its knees asking God to do things on the earth around us for his kingdom to come. What is your prayer life like? How diligent and intense are you about your prayer life? Or you, do you just believe it's all kind of meaningless, nothing dribble? This is telling us in chapter eight that prayer matters and it does change things. John is writing to churches under the boot of Rome, under the sword of Domitian and Nero, the emperors. 
And he's saying, look, church, I know you have no military power. You have no cultural favor. You have no political influence. But if you would be a people of prayer, you can move the heavens and the earth. And with no military power, no political influence, no cultural favor, this band of early Christians, because of their devotion to prayer and the life of Jesus and following him, changed and rocked an empire and history. The mightiest empire the world had ever known was no match for people who would pray. And this is the exhortation of God before he steps into these seven trumpets and judgments. He's saying, hey, before you get overwhelmed with all of this stuff going on, with all of the trouble and trial, I want to call you to prayer. I want to call you to fast. I want to call you to contend for your family and for your life. And I want to remind you that Jesus is in the middle of it all. These trumpets are making reference to the story of Exodus and the plagues that God sent on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You'll see the same language, the sun blotted out, the, the rivers of blood, and, and these actually intensify that and say that this is actually going to be the reality of the whole earth, not just one nation of the earth. And so Jesus is bringing John here back into the story of the Exodus. And that story of the Exodus, we don't have time to get into it, but what I want you to uh, to see and understand is the story of the Exodus is not a story of God confronting a man, namely Pharaoh. It's God confronting the gods of Egypt. Each one of those plagues is a specific attack against the gods of Egypt. And in these trumpets, Yahweh, the most high God, is bringing judgment to the spiritual realities, to the gods of our age, to the gods of our cultures and our systems and our structures. He's bringing judgment to the evil, the carnage of sin and death that they're inflicting on the world. And he's imploring the church to be a church of prayer as they walk through the realities of the end of the age. I want you to just notice that the numbers used, one-third is a number given. Five months, the locusts are kind of given free reign. Those numbers, that one-third is a symbol of God's mercy, even as he's bringing justice and judgment to the earth. He's restraining and exercising mercy. He's not just opening the floodgates to devour everything, even though he could. That five-month period that these locusts torment the earth we heard about in chapter 9, that's a finite time. Apparently, locusts only actually live about five months. What we're to walk away from these chapters with is this reality that suffering and judgment are going on on the earth today. And the stuff that is so broken and twisted and distorted on the earth, those places of pain and carnage and turmoil and hurt, those aren't being provoked by God. God is actually stepping into this world with the kingdom 
that comes with Jesus and he's bringing judgment on those things in our world that are provoking the plans of the enemy, that are cultivating it. At the end of the day, these trumpets, they talk about calamities on the earth, natural disasters. They talk about the reality of Polyon and Wormwood and all of these things are references to the direct connection of the spiritual realm with the natural. And they tell the story of God bringing judgment to the things that have opposed him. And part of that judgment is to judge the people that refuse to repent. These judgments, in fact, are meant to bring people to repentance. These judgments are meant to alert us, hey, something's not right here. Something is off in in our culture. Something is not going the way that God would have designed it to go. We need to repent. These are God's way of calling the earth back to repentance. I want to just invite you to stand. I'm going to ask Ben to come. I wish we had time to cover so many of these things specifically and individually. When John gives this description of these locusts, they're told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God, who are not covered and sealed by the Holy Spirit, who are not followers of Jesus. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails that sting like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, Satan, is the demonic spiritual reality that Jesus is uncovering for John here. And this is not a description of Apache helicopters and American military power. This is a description, what's meant here in this uh, evocative description, it's meant to trigger and provoke you with terror. Like, God, if I don't get my life in order, if I don't actually turn around and repent, stuff is going to go down on this earth and in my family and in my life that is intended to bring terror and horror to me. What Jesus is trying to get across is sin is real and it's serious. Stop playing with the crap of the world. 
Stop walking in ignorance and willful bliss because this stuff has a ravaging and disastrous effect. And if you continue to walk in rebellion toward God, if you're not gonna walk in repentance, you can expect to experience the consequences of God bringing justice to those things that oppose Him in His kingdom. This is meant to strike fear in your heart and it's meant to do it. It's meant to stir you emotionally and to provoke you. And these seven trumpets that Jesus is describing, we're supposed to feel the horror and terror that's being depicted. We've gotten way too cozy with sin, way too cozy with culture, way too cozy with affluence and ease and peace, way too cozy with the good stuff around us. There's nothing wrong with good things and blessings from God, He gives them. But we've gotten way too cozy to the point where we don't call sin, sin anymore where we just cover it over and where we say, oh, that's not really that bad. I don't really have to worry about that. I'll just keep living my life. I'll just keep drinking on Friday and Saturday and going to church on Sunday. I'll just keep living for everything I want from this life. And what's meant here is to get you to feel viscerally in your gut and in your stomach and in your heart the horror and terror of what comes when sin is allowed to reign and rule and the consequence of God bringing judgment to that. God must bring the enemy to judgment. The question is, are you going to be the one and one of the ones following the lamb, walking through guarded and protected. It doesn't mean that we don't experience trial and trouble. Jesus said, some of you are gonna die on account of me. But our eternal fate is secure. Nothing can take us from the hand of God. So his question to you and me is, how are you gonna live then? Are you just gonna live oblivious to and live your best life now? Or are you gonna follow the way of the Lamb? These images and depictions are meant to convey the magnitude of the problem of sin. You should be disgusted and shocked and troubled by what you read here. It should bother you. It should keep you up at night. It should cause you to question the decisions you're making in your life and where you're going and who's leading you and what is driving the values of your life, this should bother us. And it should drive us to prayer and to the feet of Jesus. Let's close our eyes and Jesus, you are full of mercy and grace. And even now you are giving us time to repent and to turn to you. Even now you're giving us time to lay our idols down, to 
lay our self-indulgent lifestyle down. You're giving us time to be men and women of prayer. You're giving us time to follow in the way of the Lamb. You're giving us time to get our own house in order. You're giving us time even now, Jesus. And it's your grace and mercy that are, that are prolonging even these days, even as hard as it is on the earth today and as, as, as wicked and, 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 and vile as things are. You said through Peter that God didn't want anyone to perish, but all to receive eternal life. And so you're being patient with us, but God, there is a reality to sin. There's a reality to the kingdom of darkness and to following the way of the kingdom of darkness that we need to, to be sober-minded about. And so we ask for your conviction in our lives, Holy Spirit, in those places where we are compromised. Jesus, I pray that in these days that you would stir the church again to live holy and blameless and set apart lives. That you would stir us with urgency again to pray and to pray again and then to pray some more that you would stir us with daily urgency to invest our lives and our time in your presence. Father, I pray for this church, for my friends here, that we would not be caught asleep, that we would not be unaware of what's happening around us, but that you would stir us and awaken us to the really real realities going on around us. Not to scare us or cause us to walk in fear, but to allow us to see the leadership of our Good Shepherd, to be people who follow His footsteps through suffering, through persecution, through torment and trial and pain and hardship. I pray for dads here today. Father, we need men who are willing to be spiritual warriors in their homes, not spiritual couch potatoes. We need men who are willing to invest time in fighting the good fight, which is the spiritual one. Men who are willing to fight against their own flesh and go down on their knees every morning as they plead for your, uh, your presence in their lives and in their family. Father, you are, are calling men to rise up and take a leadership place in their own lives and in their families, one that actually leaves a legacy of spiritual vitality and fruit, one that doesn't just kind of uh, just show up on Sunday and go through the motions, but one that is engaged with you in the, in the battle of eternity for their own family and their friends. I pray that you would stir the men here today, Jesus. that you would grip them with a sense of calling and urgency, an assignment from the King to ride in spiritual battle over the affairs of their lives, over their addictions and habitual sin patterns. 
Father, I pray for the men who are here who are captured by sexual immorality and lust and addiction to pornography and self-gratification and adultery. Father, who have been bound by these things, who've lost their spiritual authority and power because they've actually given in to the way of the enemy, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring revelation and life and freedom. Father, for every man who is present, uh, who spends more time looking at stuff online than in your word. Father, I pray for every man who is present that you would put a holy stirring and calling in their lives for purity of mind and of heart. Father, that you would call men to the spiritual battlefield to take back these areas that the enemy has robbed them of, these men who are walking spiritual zombies, totally impotent spiritually. God, I pray that you would stir them to be men of God, of purpose, of holiness in these days. That you would give us your grace as we walk through an earth that seems to be on fire right now. We need your grace, Jesus. We love you.